2: It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world, and helps us understand the
0: political developments unfolding around us.
1: Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and on the line we have myself, Jacob.
2: Uh, And me, Chloe. Good morning,
3: Zane, Hi.
1: Yeah, so that's all. Those are the, we are the presenters for this week's program. And I guess before we start, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay our respect to Elders past and present and that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Now, I guess the first kind of story I wanted to sort of, start a bit of discussion about. There's quite a number of news articles that we might go through in terms of, like, headline news, as we usually would um, at the start of kind of every program. The first kind of thing I want to have a start a bit of a discussion about is about this controversial um, scheme that has been implemented as part, I think it is, as part of the federal budget, although I could be wrong. But basically, um, one of the decisions, yeah, it's one of the decisions in the, this month's, um, federal, um, bu- um basically the, 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 controversial scheme of the welfare cashless card is going to be implemented in certain parts of, um, Western Australia, South Australia, such as Sunduwa, um, East Kimberley and the Goldfield areas of Western Australia. And of course, uh, Harvey, Harvey Bay and Bundaberg in Queensland. So those are all places where um, that are going to be implemented. Uh, they're going to be implementing the cashless welfare card. And um, basically um, there's a recent decision in this month's um, federal budget, which basically has a provision that allows cardholders to exit um, the scheme for an application. However, the, the figures find that, the only are pe- uh, only one in four people have been able to kind of exit the kind of scheme. So you know, it's actually I think completely I guess outrageous um, this program, and um, you know this a whole idea of being of having a process to exit the scheme. Um, be tied to sort of this bureaucratic sort of body from the top is, I think, very problematic. In fact, I would argue that the scheme shouldn't exist to begin with. Mm. People's welfare on income shouldn't be controlled by a cashless welfare card. Their, their welfare shouldn't be tied to the existence of any kind of card that restricts what they can do, especially since these cashless welfare cards um, actually, I think, reinforce... Um, um, the issues of poverty, because often most, um, services, uh, that you can use a credit card with, um, and not cash often tend to be more expensive. You means you can't go to your fresh fruit and vegetable place, which tends to offer cheaper vegetables than, say, Woolworths or Coles. So I think it's just, yeah, I think it's fundamentally, I think, in you know, some sense, a human rights kind of, row. Uh, um, the fact that all these coalition MPs are supporting implementing this um, cashless welfare card and actually expanding it beyond these initial communities, I think is quite outrageous.
3: I think it's really about it's just part of the suite of measures that has a punitive approach to joblessness and seeks to make being unemployed unbearably horrible uh, you're, you're totally poor. You can hardly afford to pay rent and keep food on your plate. You get bossed around and cut off your payments by not only the cashless debit card, um, people, but you also get cut off your payments, uh, by the job network providers. Uh, if you don't turn up to meetings, you've got to go to these patronizing work for the dull things and these meetings about, here's how to write a resume for, you know, people who've been, gainfully employed for 20 years and know exactly how to write a resume uh so i think that's really what the purpose of it is and the really 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 perverse thing about this is it costs ten thousand dollars per person per year to administer this micro managing cashless debit card there's like a person in a room who's looking at all your transactions and monitoring your debit card and when you ring up and go oh hi um my rents didn't get paid again from the cashless debit card. What's that all about? Oh, yeah, here, let us pay that. Um, yeah, sorry about the fact that you've now been blacklisted because of our administrative errors. So they could just double Centrelink. They could just keep it at the covered supplement rate for the same amount of money that they're paying to micromanage people's finances. It's, it's really perverse and wrong. Oh, and guess who is the uh, organisation... That runs the cashless debit card um, operation. A liberal party donor isn't that funny,
2: mm, isn't it? Indu, you
3: know,
2: mm. to... yeah, it's a, it's the cruelty of um, of neoliberalism, and it. You know this cashless welfare card should be abolished. It, it unfairly targets um, Indigenous people. Um, there was a one spokesperson from the Npy women's Council the chairperson Mamie um, Butler said that the move uh, could be devastating for remote communities, which is where they're rolling it out um, and if she said if this card does come along um, oh it's you know it's extended it'll take us right back to when our ancestors first walked into the missions and uh, are being fed by rations uh, that's what she said so yeah, we really need to speak out against controlling people's incomes it's a very mm. demeaning process to be without a job and yeah we're just making that process way more difficult for people who are trying to find work
1: and um just the last kind of thing i'll kind of end this on as part of, guests of the discussion is one of the one of the things about the federal budget is, so it's already currently been trialled in the sort of regions that I sort of mentioned before, but the plans from the, the the coalition government, and this is sort of a debate in the parliament that's currently going on right now, they want to expand the, um, they want to have an expansion of the cashless debit um, card scheme and um, but they, that is sort of something that is being currently debated in the parliament at the moment. Um So, yeah, we'll watch the space to sort of um, as kind of developments kind of go along. All right. I might just play, I guess, a quick announcement um, and then we might move on to the next part of the um, next story to discuss. OK, you're listening to Green Left Radio and... I wanted to kind of discuss um, something that actually happened last Friday. But um, Kevin Rudd, who is uh, the former Labor Prime Minister, I mean, to be honest, I'm not a big fan of Kevin Rudd, um, but I do think this initiative he sort of launched to be quite, you know, reasonable, Um, essentially through the, um, the Parliament kind of website, um, Kevin, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, has launched a, a kind of in, a royal kind of commission or a petition demanding a kind of royal commission into uh, Rupert Murdoch's domination of um, media, which I think is sort of something I guess in some ways that is um, quite kind of overdue. Um, basically, sort of looking into sort of the robot kind of Murdoch's kind of domination of media, which you all know, which is through you know the Herald Sun News dot et com etc. And what's quite significant has been that the petition has actually gained a significant amount of signatures, uh, and in fact um, the this is what's interesting enough not being necessarily being reported by the mainstream media while they sort of, um, by the Murdoch media, especially. Um, but the, but there was such a widespread, um, support for this petition that, um, the Australian Parliament website was actually went down. (laughs) Um, of course, um, 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 that the pop, um, basically led to Kevin Rudd tweeting that the popularity of the petition had caused the website to suspect users signing it were robots, which is usually something that, um, websites usually, you know, website security, um, sort of usually has. If, um, if you have lots of sort of signatures all at once or lots of hits, um, then the, the, the website will have this sort of inbuilt kind of thing that will shut the website down or something uh, as a security precaution. I guess yeah. I thought that um, I think it is quite interesting. I'm not sure where it will necessarily go. Although one sort of comment I want, an important comment I kind of want to make is um, just reading an article in the Guardian on this whole issue. It was it was a bit funny um, to hear the comments that Anthony Albanese made in response. So it it, it basically I think Anthony Albanese basically, you know, supported Kevin Rudd's right to call for a Royal Commissions um but he made it clear that Kevin Rudd is only doing it as a private citizen and sort of made it clear that the idea of calling a Royal Commission into um, the News Corp domin- um, dominance of Australian media is not Labor policy, and it's sort of like it's it's always funny um, whenever something prog- some progressive initiative com- happens from comes from some former Labor prime minister or someone f- who was who was from who was linked to the Labor Party. Uh, the Labor Party is always quick to sort of distance themselves, and also I also think it's sort of I think it's sort of interesting that you know when it comes to any sort of former um pr- Prime minister or politician it tends to be that they only tend to do progressive things when they're not in power yeah. but when they were in power they didn't really do much so um yeah
2: yeah mm.
3: funny
2: yeah, you yeah. oh sorry Zane I was just gonna say that yeah we should support Kevin Rudd's um you know initiation of the Royal Commission into Murdoch but you know yeah like Jacob said he should have done this when he was prime minister and i don't mean to sound cynical but these royal commissions we can't just keep calling royal commissions on everything they take ages and Mm. we need to propose serious changes now and sometimes i I feel like politicians they just call royal commissions because they're basically handing off problems they're too afraid to solve themselves and well what's the point in having elected leaders if they can't take ownership of an issue Uh, like you said it's a Murdoch Media is a, a cancer. Um, maybe we should call Royal Commissions into Royal Commission. <laughs> but, but the, the Royal commi- like the royal Commission into the Murray River and family violence investigations, governments systematically fail to follow their own recommendations. Another one is the 1991, what was it, 19? I think it was 1991 Royal Commission into Abri- Aboriginal deaths in custody. Mm. In- indigenous people are still being thrown in prison at high rates and there are still debts in custody. So if these royal commissions are to have any effect, governments should be bound by its recommendations.
0: Hmm.
3: Yeah, look, I think when the revolution comes, instead of having uh, the uh, Murdoch operation placing people in the ABC, we're going to go in the other direction. And we're going to nationalise News Corp and we're going to turn into a big 3CR. Yeah.
2: It'll
3: be a big public good. and community-run media organisation and we'll uh, get rid of Rupert for good.
2: Thank goodness for that. We shouldn't forget that Rudd did donate to Murdoch, to News Corp, and when he was asked about it on ABC, he said he's not going to apologise for that. So, I mean, I would support that, this petition, but... It's a shame that when he was in power that he didn't, um, you know, make these changes then.
3: Mm. I mean, I think there's the direct uh, intervention in politics of the Murdoch Empire, the evil empire, which is um, like its highly partisan role constantly slagging off and demonising the Labor Party and the Greens and, and kind of moving the Overton window so far to the right where it would be scandalous for the ABC to... Like, Q&A, for example, Green Left Weekly has never had someone on Q&A. How many times has the Institute of Public Affairs and all these, like, right-wing organisations and, and News Corp had people on on Q&A? Like, it, the, the Murdoch Empire really moves the whole debate to the right. There's the direct attacks on you know, centre-left politicians and the the direct promoting of liberal and defending of liberal politicians. But then in tandem to all that is the constant cultivation of racism that benefits right-wing, nationalist, xenophobic, far-right politics. And it's really a cancer on society here and everywhere else that it operates. And if that makes me someone who's like opposed to freedom of speech, I'm guilty as charged because this is, this is not about freedom of speech. It's about this media cancer, which slowly strangles and buys off and swallows up all of its competitors and then uses its massive platform to constantly incite Racism, hatred, and division, and nationalism, all of which benefits the existing ruling class. So,
2: yeah, and the Murdoch media, they you know, they, they just get rid of prime ministers whenever they feel like it. So, I can understand why you know, Rudd didn't you know try to speak out when he was actually a sitting prime minister, but yeah, they, they have a lot of power and they need to be brought down. Oh,
3: they I mean, need to be cut down to sides, real good. I
1: mean just um just to respond I guess a bit to some of Chloe's I guess points, um one of the one of the bit of one of the contexts for why um why Kevin Rudd has sort of made it sort of his main thing to sort of campaign against the Murdoch media um was because the Murdoch media is sort of attributed to the reason why Kevin Rudd lost to Tony Abbott um, mm. in the 2013 kind of federal elections. And, of course, probably uh, I wasn't sure. Um, I'm not that um, across um, the donation he made to the Murdoch media, but I imagine it would have been before that. Um, and at the time when he was a politician, um, he was probably trying to, play sort of both sides in a sense of trying to make sure he was in good um, standing with the Murdoch press, which is very typical of kind of, I guess, politicians. All right. Well, um, just for listeners' information, um, if you're interested in signing the petition, I'm pretty sure if you search Royal Commission into Murdoch petition on Google, you should be able to get a link to it on the Australian Parliament website. So, yeah, I think, I think it's probably a petition that's definitely worth signing. And I guess it's, it's of interest to FreeCR and all our sort of programs that, uh, the dominance of the Murdoch Media Challenge, especially for, I guess, community, um, for, especially on the question around community radio representation. Right. Might just go play, I I guess another announcement and then we might move on to, I guess, another part of the program.
0: Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today.
2: Local issues.
1: So I'm here at the school, kids' strike for climate
0: action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC.
4: Your voices. So you give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening? There's
0: about 200, 200
4: people here at the
0: moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tanaminawea Mawwohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here.
1: I guess now we've been talking a bit about a kind of like issues around. Oh wait, sorry. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And I guess we've been, we've been having a bit of a discussion about kind of like the dominance of kind of like the Murdoch media, the the rolling out of the cashless kind of debt card scheme. But a sort of another sort of issue, I guess, of government kind of corruption, um, that has sort of popped up recently, um, has been this whole sort of controversy around the New South Wales, um, Premier Gladius, um, Oh. How do you pronounce her last
3: Berejiklian.
1: Berejiklian. So Gladius.
3: Uh, she, I think she's of uh, Armenian background.
1: Yeah. So there's been this whole scandal, I guess, surrounding her, including some motions of no confidence being put um, forward to her in the New South Wales Parliament. Um, and where, the, I guess, the story starts is basically um, there's been a bit of an investigation um, in a sort of, sort of body, the ICAC, um, which had... Intercepted a sort of um, series of, I guess of phone calls, and basically it concerns uh, the the affairs of a of a particular parliamentarian um, named Daryl McGuire. and basically the gist of it is Daryl McQuire has basically admitted that using his kind of position of parliament that essentially he has used his power as a as a parliamentarian to, you know. Basically make some sort of behind sort of closed door deals with property developers or his sort of other kind of associates. Completely normal kind of behavior for elected politicians to use your position for financial gain over over others. And now what has been heavily scrutinized is Gladios has was in has apparently been in a relationship with um Daryl McGuire. Now I guess a few things I kind of want to say. A preface first, because I guess my view is I do think that in terms of the kind of media coverage of how this has been handled by um, by the mainstream media, is I do think there's a certain element of sexism uh, to the fact that I do think that you know the personal relationship of a woman, especially uh, a, a, a politician. You know, I think the level of scrutiny I think from uh, on into that sort of conduct by because I think some of the some of the Sky News headlines have almost made it out to be an affair, a kind of like a scandal, even though it wasn't actually a fair because Gladios is not married in um, in this instant. It's completely consensual kind of relationship, and also the fact there is also the hypocrisy from uh, the mainstream media when you had the whole case of Barnaby Joyce. And when you had the whole case of Barnaby Joyce, the Murdoch media and all the major news say was like, instead of moral condemnation, we literally gave him a free platform to talk about his uh, relationship. When actually it was a clear case of adultery, uh, you know, cheating on his wife with a with another woman, etc. And even worse, the woman had to be um, was a staffer, and now uh, that raises questions about the whole power relation, etc. Now, I guess.
3: I I think, but with Barnaby Joyce, the issue is not that he had um, cheated on someone. The issue is that he'd gotten on his high horse previously about equal marriage and said, "Oh, we can't have equal marriage because it will encourage adultery." So, well, look who's talking. Yeah, yeah, Uh, exactly.
1: That's a very good point, um, Zane.
3: But but I think you know, if politicians, if they want to, you know, commit adultery or whatever they do in their private lives, is up to them the the, the grey area here and, and where I think the uh, the issue is, it's not that Gladys has had a relationship with X, Y or Z in whatever kind of monogamous bloody context it's it's 100% about who this person was and what sort of discussions they've been having and um, as you were perhaps uh, about to mention that one of the pieces of evidence presented at ICAC is this bumbling idiot Maguire ringing up Gladys to go, oh, yay, I'm just like, we just sealed another deal. And and Gladys being a bit smarter than this idiot Maguire is like, "Um, our phones are probably being tapped. I don't need to talk to you about this right now on the phone. <laughs> you idiot. She, like, she doesn't say that, but that's the obvious kind of vibe. And, why would you tell someone, I don't need to hear that from you, unless you know that they're going to be telling you about something dodgy? In which case, if your phone's being tapped, you're not going to want to be talking about that on the phone. Like, it's pretty damn obvious from her statement, I don't need to know about that. She is aware that this guy is right on the edge of saying something dodgy over the phone so
1: yeah so i think that's yeah that um saying that's what i was sort of getting into. that is actually the key issue i think with this corruption thing whereas i think in some sense the media has attempted to sort of scandalize the relationship aspect which i think is problematic and i think quite um i think sexist especially in terms of treatment. One, the actual issue is the fact that clearly um she was in in this relationship with this politician and had some conscious knowledge of his dodgy kind of dealings. And of course, I don't think it's that shocking to be honest, because in some sense, politicians, they operate in a world that is completely separate, separate from working class people. They think they're literally, they literally believe that with the power that they have as elected representatives, that they're kind of above the law and And for liberal politicians, they tend to be entangled um, because a lot of their social base comes from property developers, business, um, other sort of institutions that partake in all sorts of shady um behind kind of closed door kind of dealings. And I think this is the the classic example of of this this whole case of Gladios and her relationship with um Darrell is I guess I think a classic case of this. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways um I I do I, I actually would agree with the cause for um Gladius to resign uh, in light of this. But, of course, they're not going to um, – she probably isn't. She's already asserted that she's not. Um, although what I find interesting is while the Murdoch media um, has been calling for Daniel Andrews to resign um, over his sort of handling of um, – of the of the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, similarly, they have been a lot softer on Gladys. I think probably because Gladys is a member of a party that they have more affinity and support for, which is the Liberal parties.
3: I I suspect that it, um, I suspect that Gladys will get the flick. Um, really? I don't I don't think that. All right, she's being portrayed as this kind of clean skin, real honest <clears throat> politician, while these liberal commentators, Scott Morrison, um, Malcolm Turnbull. But at the end of the day, it's why else would you tell someone over the phone? I don't need to hear about this unless, you know, they're about to tell you something dodgy. It's, it's a bit of a smoking gun as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah. And so it's sort of funny. It's like, um, it, uh, just a bit of a funny observation. Um, you know, it's not really a normal thing um, to gloat to your partner or someone in your relationship that you just made this amazing kind of property deal. I guess for mo- all of us, that is actually just not a normal thing. I mean, usually the thing you would gloat to your partner about is, I just got a job. Um, but for these politicians, it's, oh, I made a dodgy deal with some property developer or some business associate that... Um, Oh yeah, we shouldn't really talk about this on the phone because we'd probably get, um, we'll probably get persecuted by the, um, by the law if we, if we dare spoke about this openly. But yeah, I just think that sort of example is just sort of like, yeah, how distant uh, they are from the ordinary lives of, of working people. Okay. Well, I might, um, I might just go play, I guess, a quick announcement. Um, and then we might move on to another um, next part of the story.
0: Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid Nam is a new mutual aid group of organized volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook. COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter.
1: You're listening to Green Left Radio, and we were just having a bit of a discussion about um, the whole Gladios um, Bojikani. Oh, Boj-
3: Beridiklian.
1: Berejiklian um oh, sort of case um Gladius I, I sort of um, I, I her name actually kind of reminds me of if everyone's played the kind of video game portal um uh it reminds me of the name of the company um in that which is called GLaDOS or something <laughs> now but going into I guess the more um the kind of main story we wanted to talk about um which is basically there's been a number of there's been this whole kind of campaign around the right to protest in New South Wales because in New South Wales, um, the restrictions are a lot, uh, you know, a lot um, are pretty, you know, loose compared to what um, what the restrictions are currently like in Victoria. Um, because right now the New South Wales government is allowing up to 40,000 people to enter stadiums and hundreds of people are, are able to mingle in like shopping centres and in casinos. Um, so there has been a number of recent protests. Um, and the first one I wanted to talk about, was, which was occurred on October 10th, um, a COVID-19 um, safe rally against New South Wales MP Mark Latham's transphobic Education Legislative Amendment Parental Rights Bill was organised on October the 10th, which was and it was in a sense declared uh, illegal by the New South Wales Supreme Court the day before. But this action um, ended up over 400 people. Um, um, 400 people uh, had assembled. Um, however, the police were quick to kind of repress the protests, um, and the protest was eventually kind of moved on by police. And so that's, that's sort of, that's another, I guess, another case, that's one sort of case. Uh, a more recent case happened, I guess, on October the 13th, where University of Sydney staff and National Territory Education Union members held a small socially distanced protest on October the 13th uh, against the federal government's attacks on higher education and the university management's austerity measures. And the rally, um, as written here by McKellar and Green Left, the rally affirmed the democratic right to protest after a series of recent COVID-19 safe rallies on campus were aggressively shut down by New South Police. Um, Nisa, police had initially denied approval for this action. However, um, the New, N- New South Wales NTU branch successfully challenged it in the New South Wales Supreme Court. And I guess, yeah, I think uh, the pro- the protests had, had only uh, like about 40 um, people kind of in attendance, but it, w- it didn't stop the police from sort of repressing it openly, uh, charging um, charging protesters with fines and, you know, attend- and that's despite the fact that the New South Wales government, as I kind of said at the beginning, uh, is allowing more than 40,000 people to gather in stadiums and so on.
2: Yeah, it's... Beyond question, now that state governments and the police are definitely using COVID-19 to shut down the right to protest, um, it's just a very deliberate ideological um, crackdown, <laughs> and it's been used against also the the refugee rights protesters as well, trying to get the refugees um, out of the Mantra in in Melbourne and uh, over in Kangaroo Point in Queensland, and yeah, onshore and offshore detention. So it's it's just yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty awful mm-hmm. that they're just using the state's health powers against the right to protest. And once the pandemic's over, um, we're going to have some real problems with the right to protest if we don't um, call it out now and fight for that right.
3: There's a right-to-protest group that's been set up in Sydney um, by some different left groups. I think that that sort of right-to-protest to... needs to become uh, an Australia-wide phenomenon, perhaps. And uh, I think that's important because currently it's the sort of anti-mask covered crackpots who are kind of taking that space. I think it's important for the left to uh have a... You know, not to leave that to the to the kind of QAnon and on nut jobs to kind of be the I don't know the flag bearers of that. Look, there needs to be a presence of people who are like yeah, we understand science, we understand COVID nineteen, we understand the importance of lockdowns, masks, blah blah blah. But as we get to COVID normal, as we get to very low cases of community transmission, it's important that our democratic right to protest. While social distancing, wearing masks, etc., is allowed, like this is, you can't just get rid of democracy in the middle of a pandemic.
2: Yeah, we have nothing to do with the protest. The left had n- nothing to do with the protests involving those conspiracy theorists and the anti-lockdown movement that's taking place in Victoria and other parts of the world, where we know the pandemic is. Real and we endorse mask wearing and social distancing and, you know, in order to restrict the, the spread of the virus. And that's been reflected in all of our protests because they're all, uh, safe. They're all mm. designed to be safe for the community.
3: Mm. including these recent protests in Sydney, like whether it's on the university campuses or it was the Community Action for Rainbow Rats protest against Mark Latham's, uh, transphobic Education legislation amendment. Um, everyone's wearing masks. People are distanced, and there's a small fraction of people there compared to what was at the footy at the weekend.
1: All right. Well, we might um, we might um, tie up this, um, and maybe we'll go on to uh, another part of the program.
0: Hey, all you mob! It's Dr. Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work, and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet.
2: A 3CR supporter.
1: All right. Good morning listeners, you are listening to Green Left Radio, and for our first interview for the program today, um, we have both Rachel Evans and Sam, Sam Rainwright, uh, who are the organisers and members of Social Alliance and also write regularly for Green Left. Um, Green Left and Socialist Alliance has initiated um, an eco-socialism sort of conference um, that is happening um, on the 24th and the 25th of October, which is next weekend. Um, so Sam and Rachel, I'd like to kind of start off. I mean, what, what is the kind of, what is, I guess, the political context for why this conference is sort of being called in terms of, yeah, what the type of kind of discussion and broader political points you sort of want to get across? Sure, Jacob. Look, I'll jump in first, if that's Okay.
4: Look, I think that there's a, a couple of things that shape the context. One is the growing awareness of the climate crisis in particular, but also the fact that we're facing ruptures with the Earth's life systems and a whole range of fronts. And secondly, is a growing awareness within the movements, both environmental movements and social justice movements, in my perception, that capitalism capitalism is is the cause of the problem and that we can't build a better society, a society that puts... People in the environment first, a society where humans live in peace with the planet and all humans have a dignified life, that capitalism can't produce that. The capitalism is fundamentally hostile to that. The capitalism is incapable of recognizing the fact that there are natural limits to the earth systems. So we need a different kind of system and that's pretty widespread. I think, um, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago, with, within the environment movement, you would have found more people who still think that somehow it's possible to create a green capitalism. But I think that's 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 fading away and fading away fast. That that perception. Um, so what that then just poses the question: What do we replace it with, and how do we um, imagine uh, an alternative to capitalism that's real, that's coherent, that people can feel feel like they can grasp? And so the conference comes at that point in time, I think, and seeks to really
1: focus discussion around that. Rachel, did you have a comment you kind of want to make to expand on that?
5: Yeah, that was very good. Look, a recent report from the United Nations Office on Disaster Risk Reduction. Uh, That recent report just revealed that during the first two decades of 2020 there has been an extraordinary increase in natural disasters and human activity is the main contributor to these catastrophes. So evidence is piling up week after week, report after report, scientifically peer-reviewed reports that we are moving towards a very dangerous point in um, in carbon emissions, in global warming, um, and that we've got to pull back. And Greta Thunberg has a new podcast, Humanity Has Not Failed where she explains as well that system change is needed. She's saying the climate and ecological crises cannot be solved within today's political and economic systems. That is not an opinion. That is a fact, uh, she notes. And she also came out with this very pithy summary of the crisis that faces Our current system is not broken. The system is doing exactly what it is supposed to be doing. We can no longer fix it. We need a new system. So it's in that vein that Socialist Alliance and Green Left have called this and organised this Eco-Socialism 2020 from Rebellion to Revolution conference, Uh, both Zoom and physically within a range of our New South Wales branches and offices um, will host this exciting and inspiring conference October 24th and October 25th.
1: And one of the things about the conference is the green, um, green left has recently kind of published this kind of eco socialist kind of manifesto, um, which is supposed to be part of form, I guess, um, part of, uh, this upcoming eco socialism 2020 from rebellion to revolution um conference. Um what can you tell us a bit more about this kind of eco-socialist kind of manifesto in terms of what it's sort of advocating for and arguing?
4: Sure, Jacob. Look, the, the Eco-Socialist Manifesto is up on the GreenLeft website. Um GreenLeft has published it as really as a starting point for a discussion. So we um we don't for a moment pretend that we've got all the ideas by any means. Um, but we do want to contribute to this discussion about what we replace capitalism with and how we get there. Um, And there's there's been a new focus, you know, especially in the context of the federal budget, on inequality in Australia, for instance. Um, But we need to take the discussion beyond simply a fairer taxation system down to the the building blocks of our economy and society that reproduce inequality and environmental destruction every day. And we need to envisage uh, an alternative to capitalism, for, for, for this century and without being prescriptive about it, we think it's going to need to draw on the best of the socialist tradition, the environment movement, trade union movement, and of course, ind- indigenous knowledge, um, learning to live in in harmony with nature, in peace with the planet, um, rather than against it. So that's that's what the manifesto is is, seek, is seeking to do. And we want to have a dialogue through that with the good activists that we work with whether they're in Extinction Rebellion or School Strike for Climate, the union movement, uh, the Indigenous rights movement and beyond, and see how all those things can 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 come together to create a new eco-socialist vision.
5: Yeah, it was a great summary. Look, it's a really good manifesto. I'd encourage people to read it, but it is the start of the discussion amongst the leaders of the new world and the leaders of our new world that we are... Um, that we are moving towards are the leaders of the really amazing social movements, the political organisations like Extinction Rebellion, the anti-gas campaigners, the First Nations communities leading the fight against gas, against coal, for land rights, all of these, and, you know, rank and file of the unions and militant unionists, all of these individuals that are fighting tooth and nail to stop horror developments are also... Realizing the collapse of the ecosystems around them and, um, the voracious corporate greed, uh, it needs to be targeted and that we need a new system. So, and those organizations and people, um, are really starting to think through that what, what do we need? What, what does a post-capitalist world look like? Um, and one of the fundamentals of that world is real democratic functioning. So, it's, um, it's going to be a really good discussion to have. I mean, there's also another UN emissions gap report that came out recently, which looks at the current rates of greenhouse gas global emissions. They're saying that we're heading for two to three degrees Celsius rise by 2100. And I'm in New South Wales and we're looking at the recent Santos green light go ahead. Um, for 850 gas wells, which would be a whole bunch of methane emissions, which is 80 times more warming than uh, carbon in the atmosphere for a shorter shelf life, but um, 80 times more warming. And we've really got to, like the Adani fight, we've really got to draw the line in the sand um, and stop these developments. But we're always going to be on the back foot. Um, unless we, the people, have power. And so that's what this discussion is around the the manifesto's discussion. And um, we're really wanting people to have a read and comment and um, and start to think about some of the concrete um, campaign ideas that we can uh, we can mobilise around uh, Green New Deal or you know public renewables as the high school student, massive public funding of renewables as the high school students strike for climate is calling for. How do we win that, um, under the current conditions in Australia?
1: And what, I guess what going into now to the conference, what can you tell us about the type of sessions, discussions and even maybe some of the speakers, um, that you're featuring? Because, um, from looking at the first session, you have a number of international speakers who'll be, um, zooming in from, um, their home countries, whether it's, um, Brazil and Malaysia. Um, so yeah, I want to kind of hear a bit more about that.
5: Yeah, so uh, just quickly on chronologically, where New South Wales Socialist Alliance and Green Left has organised the Saturday event. So Saturday, October the 24th, with we've got activists from Brazil, Sabrina Fernandes, and she's in the Socialism and Liberty Party, PESOL in Brazil, and she, that's the same party as the very well-known Marielle Franco, who was a socialist councillor who was murdered very early on in the Bolsonaro um uh, uh, just after he was elected. So she's part of that party and um, she's behind this very excellent YouTube channel, Tese Onse, and she's also part of Jacobin Brazil. So she's going to talk about the battle against the rise of fascism, really, Bolsonaro, and the fight to save the Amazon and develop a uh, post-capitalist vision uh, for Brazil. Then Peter Boyle from Socialist Alliance Australia in Sydney is going to launch and discuss the Eco-Socialist Manifesto. He's a a long-term organiser as well in the Rojava Solidarity Group. So that's the Eco-Socialist Feminist Revolution on the Syrian border. Um, So he's part of that committee and a very long-term socialist in Australia. So that's going to be interesting alongside uh, Sharon Raj, who's the Malaysian Socialist Party, one of their environment campaigners, um, and he's a young socialist and, and, um, and a very articulate one. So that's going to be a great first session from 11 to 1 p.m. Their COVID crisis and our eco-socialist response, um, is the title of that forum. And then the second forum on the Saturday is Making Council, the voice of the people. Uh, and that's from 1.30 on. And we've got some amazing, rebel councillor candidates. We've got Sam Ashby, uh, who was a senior lecturer in at Newcastle University around occupational therapy. And Sam Ashby became a socialist in the UK um, and is now based in Newcastle. She's running on a ticket with Newcastle socialist Steve O'Brien in the upcoming council elections in New South Wales. That's September next year. And then Susan Price, she's running as a, socialist activist in a ticket uh, next year Community Need Not Corporate Greed in the Parramatta City Council elections. And she's also the editor of, one of the editors of Green Left, and then Sue Bolton, who is an elected socialist councillor down in Melbourne in Moreland, uh, and lots of 3CR crew know her, and she is going to tell us about how um, socialist councillors can work in empowering the local community um, to win demands against Horrible Developers and uh, Corporate um, Mobility. Pippinman is on that uh, ca- uh, that session around councils and she's an editor of Green Left and running for Socialist Alliance in the Inner West Council on a People Before Profit ticket. So that's going to be a corker. Uh, don't miss out, folks, and you can register online.
4: Sure. And um, just so as people are aware, that Saturday has been hosted by activists over in Sydney, And then on the Sunday, uh, over in the West, where I am, we'll be hosting a couple of sessions as well on Sunday, 25th of October. And so our first panel is going to be very much shaped by the situation in Western Australia, which is what I call the fossil fuel death star or the fossil fuel heartland, um, and also the fact that we've got a state election coming up in March. And both Labor and Liberal in this state are just totally 100% foot flat on fossil fuels. So the biggest single growing contributor to australia's greenhouse gas emissions is gas processing off the wa northwest coast uh and in wa labor and liberal party just want to massively expand that people should understand that the gas industry in western australia is is all the projected increase is going to be bigger than than adani many times over uh, in terms of the fossil fuels so that's australia's emissions are just rocketing up and western australia is the main culprit and the gas industry is the main Source, source of that. So that's going to shape our first panel, which we're calling Fighting for Ecological and Social Justice in the Fossil Fuel Heartland. And we want to explore, in, in a place like Western Australia, where people perceive their well-being, their livelihood, as being dependent on these fossil fuel companies, and where the big fossil fuel companies, the big oil and gas companies like Chevron and Shell and Woodside sponsor all the sporting and cultural activities that go on. Um, how do How do we make people win the majority of working people over to a vision for a transformation that, that actually means phasing out these fossil fuel companies altogether. So we've got some uh, some really great speakers as well um, who will be addressing this before we go into discussion, and they include Marianne McKay, who's a long-time Noongar activist, real fighter um, for, for black lives here here, here in the West. Um, and we'll be talking about how Aboriginal sovereignty and learning from Indigenous knowledge is, is going to be central to the transformation um, Dirk Kelly, who's a technologist, uh, lived in the United States for a long time, uh really passionate about you know following US politics and a member of Socialist Alliance here in the West. Uh Caleb Hausman, um, who's involved in Extinction Rebellion, um and we, and is really um you know, he's really conscious about trying to get Extinction Rebellion to take to, to understand social justice issues, can't be disconnected from from environmental issues. And then we've also got Alison Zamon. Who's a Greens member of the Legislative Council, which is the upper house um, in, the, in the Parliament over here in WA, um, and we'll be talking, no doubt, about the um, the Climate Bill that the Greens are trying to bring to Parliament. So we hope to have a really, you know, fruitful discussion there. Then we've got a second panel which kind of goes a bit global and uh, which is called "Confronting Imperialism and Building People Power in the Global South." It's it's always really important for us in the West not to lose sight of the fact that 80% of the world's population lives in the so-called global South, the countries that um, Donald Trump calls shithole countries, and we should remember that the, the the West and that that the power and wealth of the West, of course, was built on colonialism and plunder, slavery, plunder, dispossession of indigenous people, exporting wealth, all that kind of thing, and it remains the case to this day um, in its neo-colonial form. And also the, the ecological crisis is, is already impacting people in the global south more than in the north. And the plan is to accentuate or ex- exacerbate that. So we really need to understand, you know, resolving that fundamentally unequal world order as, as part of our solution to, to the climate crisis. So we've got some, some, some ripper speakers here as well to take that up. One is Gary Gunderbeer. Gaudi uh, writes for Green Left um, and with a particular focus on people's movements in India. Um, Pedro Alvarez, who also writes for Green Left, um, especially about Latin America. And we'll be looking at the people's movements in Latin America and, the, you know, the struggles and the, the steps forward and the defeat. Um, I'll be talking about the situation in Rojava and the struggle of Kurdistan. And we've got Khalid Hassan, um, who's a S- Sudanese socialist living here in the West. And that's a struggle a lot of Australians don't know much about. You know, there's just been an absolutely epic people power movement unfolding in Sudan over the last two years. So yeah, that's going to be hosted, um, live here in Perth. I mean, we COVID restrictions aren't so bad here, so people will be coming in in person, but like the Saturday, you can, um, um, view it online. So just go to, just go to our website, follow the link to the tickets and then you can, you can, um, you can buy a ticket to the online version, either the Saturday or the Sunday, or both. All
1: right. Well, thank um thanks for that, um Sam and um Rachel. Um, maybe we might conclude this. And I guess any final comments you'd like to make, and how people um can actually attend the conference, especially our listeners in uh, Melbourne and um, Victoria, um, because um while um New South Wales and WA um will have the residents of um or you know, the privilege of being able to attend it in person. Um, for us, we will probably have to tune in kind of online. So I'd like to kind of hear details on how people can tune in.
4: Yeah, sure. So you can tune in to both the Saturday and the Sunday um, if you're in Victoria. And the easiest thing to do would just be go, to go to the conference website, which has got the program and the links to the um, to the tickets as well. So that's basically ecosocialism.org.au. That'll take you there. Um and also there's a Facebook event page which has got the links as well if you go to the green left Facebook Facebook page.
5: Yeah, oh, that's right. And um look it, it it is a national conference via Zoom and um I'm there's three sites that people can get to physically in New South Wales. So it's the Newcastle Resistance Bookshop Office and it's the Sydney Resistance Bookshop Office and then there's also Sydney West. Um, but people can just very easily zoom in and um, and listen that way. So check out the Facebook and um, also just encourage people to go to Green Left Eco Socialist Manifesto, do a do a read of that, and then send us your comments. If you can't make the first day of session, then you can have a read and send back some comments. We would love your feedback.
1: Thank you. Um, thank you very much, um, Sam and, um, and Rachel. And, yeah, also just for listeners, you can go um, to find out details about the conference. You can go to ecosocialism.org.au. And it is also, from my understanding, the information for it is also available on the Green Left website, which is greenleft.org.au. So anyways, thank you very much, um, Sam and Rachel for the program. It sounds like quite a good conference. And, um, yeah, hopefully some of our listeners, um, might be able to attend or at least even parts of it, because I imagine my understanding, my fit mood is, um, people in Melbourne are a bit zoomed out with, um, zoom meetings. Um, but of course that people have the choice of just attending, um, the individual sessions that they, um, that they want if they don't have the energy to attend a conference all day. <clears throat>
5: Thank you, Jacob. Thanks,
1: heaps.
4: Go well, cr and Green Left and Melbourne. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday.
0: Black and Sound, Radio 855
4: Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday. Black and Deadly Sound, please. Community Radio 855 on the AM,
1: Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio. It is um, just about time um, for this time of the program for the Green Left um, activist calendar, um, announcing some upcoming events, all these events, um, as um, you might know, um, in the time of COVID or online events. The first event I'd like to announce is there's going to be a Sue Bolton Morland Teen Performance Night fundraiser um on Friday, October the 16th, um, 6.30 p.m. Um it will it will be a series of performances from comedy, mu- music, and spoken word poets, and that's gonna be happening at 6:30 p.m. on Friday, October the 16th. Um, so yeah, you can get Details by searching, going on the Sue Bolton Morland Team Facebook page or checking out the Sue Bolton Morland Team Facebook, um, which you can find by searching, um, Sue Bolton Morland Team on Google. There'll be a conference, um, Eco Socialism 2020 for Rebellion to a Revolution happening from Saturday, October the 24th to uh, Sunday, October the 25th. And you can get details about that on the Green Left website. Now, the next kind of, um, events, um, that is, um, happening, um, is on Saturday, um, there's going to be an event, a conversation with Mike um, Davis and Rob Wallace, um, Capitalism and Ecology, a conversation with Mike Davis and Rob Wallace. This is an international event, so the time is sort of a bit vague, um, but I'll, I'll quickly go on COVID, Capitalism and Ecology, so start a conversation with Mike Davis and Rob Wallace, and you should be able to find the details. Um, so, yeah, that's that's pretty much it in terms of events. I will make a quick, um, just maybe just for a bit of a break before we go into our next interview, I'll play a quick song by Stella Donnelly, um, Beware of the Dogs, uh, for the rest of the program. You're listening to um, Green Left Radio. And for our program, for our second interview, um, we're very happy to have John Quiggin um, on our program. Um, He is a professor of economics at the University of Queensland and is also the author of the book uh, Zombie Economics and Economics in Two Lessons. And he is also um, runs a blog where he regularly kind of commentates on um matters of economics and so we have him um, here today to talk about i guess the federal budget um so yeah I guess maybe to start off, John, um, you've recently, I guess, published an article for The Conversation um, about the whole federal budget and its kind of failings on the climate, uh, which we also republished for Green Left. Um, What can you tell us, um, I guess, about, you know, you described the recent federal budget as being, you know, almost a complete failure on climate action. I guess what can you, I guess, um, to start off, what can you tell us about that?
6: Well, essentially... Um, What's needed for global climate action is uh, we start with uh, an indicative commitment made in Paris, to, uh, our first bid on how much we'll reduce emissions by 2030. Uh, that's supposed to be increased in ambition and then combined with a commitment uh, consistent with the global goal of reading 2015 of uh, holding global warming below two degrees. What the government's done has been to give a fairly global uh, indicative commitment for 2030, Fiddly accounts, so that we can meet that target notionally without actually reducing our emissions by claiming past emissions count past emissions count against it, uh, and then have no plan at all for the period beyond 2030. And that reflects the power of climate deniers uh, in, in the government's uh, backbench and indeed in the ministry. Uh, and so the budget attempts to um, attempts to again approach this issue in an entirely uh, political and symbolic way. There's no serious attempt to meet Australia's energy needs or to uh, put us on a path to decarbonisation. Rather, they go around and put down little jobs of money uh, to to, uh, deal with particular political sensitivities. So there's a small amount of money for a coal-fired power station owned by a Liberal Party donor. Well, that's, I mean, it's very bad policy, but it's such a tiny amount that it won't make much difference in the long run. Uh, There's another $50 million for carbon capture and storage research. Uh, We've already spent close to half a billion dollars on that here and much more overseas with no real success. So again, this is a purely symbolic measure that allows them then to make up a future in which carbon capture and storage works. Uh, The big uh, political need is is to get the dinosaurs on the government backbench away from coal, which is clearly a political loser, uh, while not giving any ground to to the Greens, uh, and therefore, on that basis, rather than on coherent analysis, uh, they've chosen to focus on gas and yep. that's been part of the policy for some time.
1: Yeah. And I guess one of the arguments, I guess you've sort of raised, I guess, in this article, and um, you probably allude to this in your kind of early coins, but I guess I want to kind of get a bit more kind of a specific sort of analysis. You kind of raise this issue around technology and investment. And I guess you make this kind of claim that the Morrison government is sort of opting for this approach to climate action by sort of choosing, picking and choosing sort of preferred technologies for investment. And I guess from an economic kind of perspective, what do you think is, I guess, the shortcomings, I guess, of this approach from the Morrison government?
6: Well, of course, this has been long-standing in the, in the LNP and quite odd. The standard market economic prescription would be have a carbon price. That could be a hydrocarbon tax or trade of emission permits. Uh, that would mean that the emissions reductions could be made in the cheapest possible way. Uh, the government has been so resistant to that, so we're just into many different variants, uh, always able to sniff out the heresy of some kind of market instrument, uh, that probably the time has passed. So I think there's a case that we do need to pick winners. The problem is simply uh, the government isn't doing a coherent fashion that says, let's actually look at the technologies and see what needs to be done. If it did that, it would be going hard into solar plus batteries. Uh, it isn't even putting forward big amounts of money for the, for the technologies it's favoured. Rather, it's symbolically picking winners. It's saying these are the technologies we like, which is, uh, carbon capture and storage, uh, pumped hydro in the snowy, some transmission, which is good. Uh, these are the ones we don't like, which is solar PV and wind. We won't give them any more money. So, um, it really is, as I say, uh, a A budget driven entirely by domestic politics, the combination of the culture war against, against the environmentalists and the belief that they need to, uh, uh, need to keep exports of coal going, which is is a a secondary, a secondary part of the story. But uh, that's, that is their policy framework. Well, thanks. Um, thanks for that, John. I guess the next kind of question, um,
1: you sort of make some comparisons, uh, in your article around, um, around how this kind of compares kind of internationally. And I guess I want to kind of hear a bit more of elaboration in terms of the government's kind of approach to climate action with its federal budget. How does it kind of compare internationally to some other
6: countries? Sure. Well, I mean, we can start with the Europeans who have actually taken this seriously. And they're well on the way to phasing out coal, even though they had a huge amount of it, but essentially none left by 2030. A serious commitment to decarbonisation by 2050. Uh, The same with a bunch of other developed country jurisdictions like Canada. Uh, Then you have um, among the developed countries, the current laggards are uh, the US, uh, Japan and uh, and Australia. Uh, The US still making progress because state-level jurisdictions are doing a lot to reduce emissions. Uh, That's happened to some extent here. And assuming we get the right outcome in a few weeks' time, uh, Biden is committed to a climate plan which, while maybe not adequate, is certainly comparable to what's being done in Europe. China has been holding off, it's gone back and forward on this, but recently announced a commitment to decarbonisation by 2060. Politically, I think they've seen the writing on the wall that, that uh, the strategy they had been pursuing, which involved a pivot back to coal, uh, was going to be very costly to them, uh, Biden's promised to introduce border adjustments, that is taxes on imports generated from China because they're cheating on, on coal. So, uh, so, uh, that, and Japan has finally, finally moved away. They've said they're going to close down all of their old and inefficient power stations by 2030. Uh, their definition of old and inefficient covers every single coal power, power, power station in Australia. So really we're left right at the back of the pack with countries like Saudi Arabia. Which have nowhere to go other than other than fossil fuels.
1: Well, going in, I guess going into a more kind of general direction into some of the other kind of work you've kind of written, um, you wrote I guess, another kind of article for the independent Australia um, kind of responding to the federal budget, giving a more kind of general critique. Of the budget, not just focusing, mm. I guess, on climate action. Um, you write, um, you wrote in the article that it's a it's, guess, an example of the of the federal government, the Liberal government, coalition government in this case, returning to the lazy kind of thinking of the past, um, especially compared to what they were able to kind of do in March and April earlier this year during the pandemic. Um, I guess, what are your kind of comments, sort of elaborating yeah. on that sort of argument?
6: Well, in the article, I think I make the point, supposing you imagine a year totally unlike the last year, one in which there weren't any bushfires, there was no pandemic, things just rolled along the, the budget that, um, uh, the budget surplus that, um Frydenberg had promised in 2019 happened, and then say, well, in what way would the budget measures in this budget be different from the budget he what, what kind of difference would there be in the budget Frydenberg would have introduced in those circumstances compared to what we Actually, so and the answer, in my view, is none at all. Uh, they probably would have brought forward the, tax, the second stage tax cuts if they were flush with money. They certainly would have splashed out money on infrastructure because that's what governments like doing. Uh, we would have seen stringency for the uh, arts, ABC, all, this, all the sectors the government doesn't like. Uh, we probably wouldn't have seen anything good done for unemployed workers. So, in other words, uh, after having acted boldly back in March and April, uh, they're back to doing exactly what they would do, except no longer worrying about debt and deficits, just saying we're going to, you know, we're going to uh, just go ahead and do exactly the things we were going to, even though we've spent another couple of hundred billion dollars uh, dealing with the pandemic. Mm.
1: And um, I to guess to change, I guess, the topic, thanks for that answer, I guess. What, um I've read that um, on your blog that you guess you're in the process i guess of writing a book um, on the economic consequences of the pandemic and I guess i want to hear kind of your comments in what way is the federal government to actually responding to the economic kind of impacts of the pandemic and where do you think i guess it's mm-hmm. failing or maybe i guess even where where is it's trying to address some of the economic impacts of the pandemic
6: well, as I say, it did a good job addressing the immediate impacts of the pandemic. But as I've indicated, uh, it's just uh, in the in the current budget, just acting as if it had never happened. There's no recognition either of the change now in, in our global situation as a result of the pandemic, or of the things which were happening anyway and have been been made clearer as a result of the pandemic. So uh, it's clear from the pandemic that uh, the real problems in our economy. Uh, lie in various parts of the service sector that, 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 uh, areas like aged care are under addressed. That's a federal government responsibility, uh, that low paid service workers have all sorts of problems. Of course, the pandemic has also created huge problems with the tourism and, and, uh, uh, and and, um, hospitality sectors. Uh, but none of that appears anywhere in the budget. Uh, same with childcare. Instead, we get shovel ready infrastructure projects so that um, the prime minister can pose in a high vis vest and, and a hard hat, just like as if nothing at all had changed. So there's no real recognition of uh, of anything to do with how the um, how the pandemic's affected us, or indeed how the how the uh, society itself has changed over the past um, over the past 20 years. I suppose I should add one point of credit you know, announced before the budget is is the uh, fixing the NBN, uh, undoing the disastrous mixed-mode and that, that Malcolm Turnbull gave us and actually trying to get that, that proper. So that, although outside the budget, was an example of responding to the needs we've revealed. But in other areas, childcare and so forth, uh, the idea that we, we can and should organise ourselves differently in the light of the pandemic uh, simply doesn't seem to have sunk with the government at all.
1: Hmm. Okay. Now of course we've we've had a bit of a discussion I guess on what's wrong I guess with the federal budget and your kind of critiques of it. I guess I want to kind of hear you from your perspective, I guess, what would I guess what is a kind of a what would an alternative kind of federal budget, I guess, that even prioritises climate action, for example, or even just prioritizes kind of the need of kind of ordinary kind of people. What do you think I guess that would look like, I guess, in terms of policy, especially in comparison to where hmm. this federal government um um, budget has failed.
6: Well, certainly, obviously, um, uh, investing in uh, investing in climate action and social housing, things that have been revealed to be necessary, as opposed to more big road projects of the kind that we've been having for the last um, how uh, you know, many decades uh, on the investment side. In terms of, um, uh, uh, I think. Uh, I, in terms of addressing people's needs, we had the opportunity with, with JobKeeper So High to, to really uh, make a radical change in our system of income support, uh, to return uh, the unemployment benefit, whatever it's called, permanently at the level of the old age pension, which is where it was uh, in the, um, uh, until the 1990s, uh, add other benefits in and expand the eligibility so that uh, we can deal with an economy where a very large portion of the time, there aren't suitable jobs available for lots of people. Uh, that would have been part of it. I think uh, we haven't really adapted uh, our thinking to the low interest rate environment, which uh, I think is, is permanent, which suggests that um, government investment should be substantially larger in general uh, and that uh, we should be investing in particular uh, more in people, which are uh, obviously uh, glaring areas, uh, early childhood, which hasn't been um, uh, has, uh, is, is a major area of shortfall and fixing the problems of the post school education sector, particularly the universities that have been created uh, created by the loss of the international student market uh, there's a huge need i think for uh, something a sense of intervention there instead of what, which what we got was uh, a package even described as ideological is is too generous a package that's driven by It'll inform prejudice about what kind of degrees the government likes and what kind it doesn't like, and, and that's unfortunately uh, typical of this government's approach. Uh, although obviously it's a government of and for the rich, it's also driven by all these cultural crotchets about uh, who's on, who's, who has the right kind of uh, right kind of car, the right kind of, lives in the right kind of suburb, uh, does the right kind of job, uh, a whole range of these things which, which drive its policy in all sorts of ways.
1: All right. Well, thanks for that. Um, we might kind of conclude, I guess, this interview. Um, you've made some um, very interesting kind of comments. I guess, do you have any guys, um, final comments, I guess, you'd like to make, um, maybe summing up what you've sort, we've sort of spoken about? Well, I
6: think I think, oh, I think think it's now very likely that, um, that the Trump administration would decide the defeat of the next election. And I think uh, the effect of that in Australia was substantial. That, that of all the developed country governments, this one has tied its fate most closely to Trump, uh, I suspect people have noticed, I think, uh, the government's climate denial policy will become much less tenable, uh, with the Biden administration, which already has a policy of border adjustments. And in general, if the whole calculations driving this cultural stuff, uh, if Trump is decided to reject in the US, will start, start to collapse. So, so I expect to see uh, quite a major change arising, uh, in the light of, in light of, uh, that outcome, assuming of course that it happens.
1: Well, thank you very much, um, John. John. Um, very very into, um, fight for discussion. Anyway, um, just to our listeners, um, we'll be playing a, as a quick announcement um, and then we might move on to, I guess, the next part of the program.
0: 3CR remains closed to all broadcasters and guests until further notice.
5: The good news is that so many of our programs are producing new shows each week from home. From lost in science to living free, done by law to defence of government schools, concrete
0: gang to chronically chilled, Mafalda to music matters, we're here with compelling content and rousing radio, listen live or listen later, tune in, stay safe and keep listening. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay.
1: You're listening to Green Left Radio, and we're getting close, I guess, to the end of the program, um, but I'll just, like before that, I'll play a quick song by Kev Kamali, um, who is quite a prominent um, Aboriginal um, singer-songwriter, and we're going to be playing the song They'll Shall Not um, Steal. Um, so, yeah, hope you enjoy.
7: Sydney Cove first boat people land And they say Sorry boys i gained your loss Where can to steal your land And if you break out Your British law For sure you're gonna hang Or work your life Like our convicts With the chain on your neck and hands And they told us "Whoa, black woman That shall not steal Said hey yeah, Black man that." gonna civilize black like barbaric lies, teach you how to kneel, but your history couldn't hide genocide, the hypocrisy to was was weird, why your Jesus said You're supposed to give the oppressed a better deal, we'll say to you, yes I'll land I shall not steal, Science and technology, hey, you can make a nuclear bomb Development has increased its size, three million megatons And if you think that's progress, I suggest your reasoning is unsound For well, you should have found that long ago you best keep it in the ground they taught us, oh, black woman shall not steal Black man thou shall not steal We're gonna civilize your black barbaric lives And we teach you how to kneel But your history couldn't hide the genocide Papacito was whisper Whispersfield Why your Jesus said Supposed to give the oppressed a better deal We say to you Yes, white man that shall not steal Whoa, yeah that I well, Job and me and Jesus are sitting underneath that infinity bridge, watching that blazing sun go down behind the poultry mountain ridge. The land's our heritage and spirit here. The rightful culture's black. And we're sitting here, just wondering when we're gonna get that land back. They told us, whoa, black woman, thou shalt not steal." Hey, yeah, black man thou shalt not steal We're gonna civilize you black barbaric lives and we teach you how to deal. But your history couldn't hide the genocide the of was was real. Oh yeah, Jesus said you're supposed to give the old press a better deal. We say to you, this white man thou shalt not steal. Your materialism has stripped the forest clean, and erased a, a contradiction that's understood by none. Mostly their left hand holds the Bible, the right hand holds a gun, and they taught us, Oh, black woman thou shalt not steal. They say, yeah, Hey, black man thou shalt not. Barbaric lies, and we teach you how to kneel. But your history couldn't hide the genocide, the prophecy that was revealed. Oh your Jesus said, You're supposed to give the oppressed a better deal. We say to you, oh, Yes, white yeah. man, thou shalt not steal. Whoa, oh, yeah, I land you better heal. Whoa, oh, yeah, white man, thou.
1: listening to Green Left Radio and we're just getting to the end of our program now I'd like to thank all our listeners and our guests who have been on our program this week and after this stay tuned for Beyond Zero Missions and we'll all see you next week
0: this brings us to the end of the show you have been listening to Friday morning breakfast with Green Left Radio brought to you by Green Left Weekly newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet
2: before profit.
1: If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1 800 634 206.
3: Arise, you workers from their farmers, arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and it last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that...